Enjoyment of the things of this world are, um, it's almost viewed as evil. That kind of goes along with harsh treatment of the body and um, things like fasting or, or just being rough, or just being off, not wearing comfortable clothes. Or, or, or There was a whole list of things. That's asceticism. That's kind of the one side that you could fall off. The other side is materialism. I mean, that's what we spent last time talking about, materialism. Um, technically, materialism is, is this idea that, that matter explains everything that there is. That really all there is is matter. There's nothing spiritual. And, um, and, and, and matter is, because it's kind of the ultimate thing, it's the most important thing, it's the most valuable thing. And so it's kind of this, this quest for, um, material enjoyment and blessings and, and kind of, the, the idea is there really is no eternal state or anything that comes after this world. This is all there is. Now, again, we said a Christian can't really be a true materialist because a Christian believes in an eternal life and believes in spiritual things, that we have a soul. All, there are a lot of things that, that kind of puts that out of the Christian sphere. But, but the problem is, is that as believers, sometimes we take on this materialistic worldview of society around us and we live as though material things were the most important and we pursue those things instead of the kingdom of God. And so materialism is the, the far extreme on the other side. And Jesus warned us many times about the danger of living for money, possessions, and this present age. Uh, of of laying up treasures on earth. Jesus said in Matthew 6:24 that no one can serve two masters and then he went on to say you cannot serve God and the ESV translates that next word money but the the New American Standard translates it mammon and it's really a transliterated Aramaic term that means wealth, possessions, and it comes to mean that in which we trust. And so Jesus says, we can't serve two masters. We can't serve our, our materialism. We can't serve wealth and possessions and trust in that and serve God at the same time. And so the, the idea there, is, and, and note that he says, you cannot. And then he says, no one can. Again, that's Matthew 6.24 and the idea there is, is no one can serve those two things as a slave. Remember, we're called to be slaves of God, slaves of Christ. And so you can't, you can't kind of sell yourself out. You have to kind of choose one or the other. So, um, very strong words from our Lord about the danger of materialism. But equally strong, I think we could say, or almost equally as strong, the danger of asceticism as well. So those are the two extremes that we want to avoid. Now we talked a tiny bit about the 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 middle ground if we want to call it that, the the goldilocks position, the the just right position, um the proper balance in, in, between these two extremes of how we relate to the world. Um does anyone and this is kind of if if you were here last time, anyone remember some of the principles or some of the ideas that, that make up a proper relationship to the world. And there's, there's probably a few. I don't know that there's one right answer here. So what, what, what's kind of in between those two extremes of materialism and asceticism? Enjoying the 
enjoying the good things. Did you say, you said one more word, but I didn't get it. Enjoying the good things that were given. Okay. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Enjoying the good things. Um, enjoyment was, was part of the, 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 what we called the right balance. Anyone else want to, that's, that's really good. Anyone else? Sure. You weren't here. Okay. Contentment. I think that, I think that fits really well. Um, being con- so enjoy the good things that were given. Be content with what you have. I think that's, that's really good. Um, contentment, I think, w- really fits into this whole thing. What, what else? How, how should we enjoy good things that we're given? What do we, what do we do before we enjoy a good meal? Gratitude. Yeah, give thanks, right? So that's part of the, the right balance. Um, thankfulness, enjoyment. Um, <clears throat> now, let me, let me see if I can get this one this way. What, what, what would you say to somebody who, who only just enjoyed all the good things that this world has to offer um, and just kind of live for those things? What would you say that person's missing or forgetting? God, right? And uh, what's God gonna do? The, we, when you get God, that's a, that's when you go for it, hey? When that's that's the right answer. So, um, what's God gonna do one day, uh, um, based on how we enjoy the things of this world? That's a that's a tough one. What else? What, what's gonna? What what are we missing if all we do is just enjoy the the nice meals and we give lots of thanks? What are we? Good. Yeah. Phil says that person is, is forgetting about eternity and the fact that we're going to have to face God one day and be given account, be judged for how we live in the body. So, um, what, what might we call that more, just more briefly? How are we supposed to think? How do we, what, um, eternal mindset. There you go. Thanks, hon. So eternal, my mindset. <laughs> That's great, eh? Way to go, honey. Um, <laughs> best student in, in the class. Okay, this is, cut it out. Um, this it's good. We're, this is this interactive time. We can kind of relax a little bit. And, and uh, anyway, so the, I think eternally minded. That's that's um, that's the idea. That this idea that we're to lay up our treasures in heaven. So we're going to talk about that. So eternally minded enjoyment, thankfulness. And the other thing that we just kind of briefly touched on is, is this idea that we have freedom in Christ. We were allowed to, um, although we're slaves of Christ, we're also free to, I, I don't know how to say it, to, to use our money in, in different ways. And, and one of the things that we want to be careful of is not judging one another for what, like what our standard is, right? We talked about how some, some people, some, some cultures would say like chrome bumpers are sinful and they would even, they, you know, they would look at somebody with a chrome bumper on their truck and they would say, what a worldly person. Um, but they would maybe spend more than what that chrome bumper costs on fishing gear so that they could go fishing or, or, or whatever it is, right? We all have different preferences and, and things that we like or don't like. 
And so we have to remember that that each one is going to give an account of themselves for what they do with their time in the body. Um, one person amongst us might uh, enjoy the freedom to enjoy their food a little bit more and buy some fancier things that others of us maybe wouldn't do, and and and, and you're free to do that or not do that. And so we got to be careful about judging one another. We, each of us is going to give an account to the Lord. So that's kind of the just the the brief. Um, touching on the middle ground, the right balance. And, and today we want to go a little bit deeper into that whole thing. Um, we don't want to be worldly. We don't want to be ascetic. We, we do want to beat our bodies appropriately. Remember Paul says, I beat my body so that I won't be disqualified. We, we don't want to live so much for this world that we, um, that we just kind of indulge in it. Um, that would, that would be, we don't want to go too far that way. We want to please God with what we, what we use and how we use the things of the world to lay up treasures in heaven. We want to make sure that we glorify God with what we have in this world. And, um, the Christian wants to use what God has given them to honor Him and, uh, and worship Him. And so to help us do that, we want to kind of go a little bit further as we think about how do we relate to this world. Um, oh, I, oh man, I totally messed something up that I really wanted to do. Um, how can I do it now? I'm, I'm so upset with myself here in this moment. I, so, um, oh, I, I really wish I had a way of doing this now, but I don't, I have no way of doing this. All right. So. I was, ah, it's it's so, (laughs) it's so too bad. Anyways, what I, what I wanted to do, and, and you, and you guys can maybe still just kind of humor me a little bit and pretend like I had done this. I was gonna, I was gonna give one of you a pencil. And then I was gonna ask if somebody had a pencil here, and I was gonna take that pencil from you that I had secretly given you that nobody else but me and you knew about it. And when you gave me that pencil, I was gonna break it in half and throw it on the floor and stamp on it or something. <laughs> and then just kind of see what do you guys think about that? So, uh, <laughs> that all Waylon thinks it would be awesome. The kids love it. Um, but what would you think, like, what, what would you think if I, and you just thought it was some random person, you thought Peter gave me a pencil and I just broke, snapped it in half? Would, would you like, would start thinking, is this the right pastor that we got here? Or, um, what would you think? Just to just give me some, humor me a little bit. <laughs> the kids think it would be awesome, but what if it was your pencil, Waylon? What would you think about that? Oh, <laughs> he's got a pencil. I could, I could break it. That would kind of wreck it. Um, so anyways, what, 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 what would you think if you just thought I broke someone's pencil that they gave me randomly? Waylon says he'd get upset. You, wh- why would you be upset if it was... Why would why would anyone be upset if I broke if I broke a pencil that I was given? Ivan's not. <laughs> Ivan doesn't mind. Yeah, good. Karina says you're you're destroying someone else's property. It's like it'd be a little bit shocking, right? If I if I broke um, 
somebody else's property. <laughs> Waylon says we would need to forgive them. Um, so it, you know, but at the at the you know, I think at first, if you if you realized that wasn't his pencil, you would be a little bit shocked and you would feel like a bit appalled. Like, hey, that it's only a pencil, yeah, but it's still it doesn't belong to to me. So what right do I have to just snap it and and stomp on it? But then once I told you, ah, uh, like you know. Peter was in on it, and it's actually my pencil that I gave him, then you'd kind of go, oh, well, I get, like, if, if you want to break your own pencil, that's kind of your problem, right? And so it makes, it makes all the difference who the owner is. And that's kind of was supposed to be the, the object lesson of this thing that I messed up here. So, um, it makes all the difference who the owner is. And, and that's what I want us to think about a little bit tonight. Who owns the universe? And that's a simple question. God. Drake's got it. You guys got it. So God owns the universe. Who owns the world? Who owns the things in the world? Good. God. Okay. I hear a lot of, a lot of voices. Now, this is where it gets a little bit like more trickier. Who owns your stuff? Yeah, God, right? God, Jesus owns, owns your stuff. Now, I don't know that we ought think about it that way, but I, but I, but scripture is very clear on that. And, and I want to, let's just go to a whole bunch of verses. And, uh, I almost want to weary you with looking at these verses. So let's start with Deuteronomy 10, 14. Deuteronomy 10.14 says, um, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. The earth and all that's in it. Heaven and earth belongs to God and everything that is in it. So not just like the planet itself, but everything that's in it. Uh, Leviticus 25.23 says, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. You are strangers and sojourners with me. So God says about the land of Israel, he's talking to Israel there, the land is mine, and and so it, it, he didn't want it to be kind of sold to people forever. He, he wanted it to go back to the original tribes to which it belonged, because he says the land is actually his land. Uh, go to First Chronicles, chapter twenty-nine. So First Chronicles, you know Samuel, Kings, Chronicles. You'll you'll see it there. First Chronicles twenty-nine, and I want to read a, a a bit of a longer section here. First Chronicles. 29, starting at verse 6. Then the leaders of the fathers' houses made their freewill offerings, as also did the leaders of the tribes, the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, and the officers over the king's work. They gave for the service of the house of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. And whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord 
in the care of Jehiel, the, the Gershonite. Then the people rejoiced because they had given willingly, for with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly, and David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. So the people have just freely given this 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 massive offering that's going to be for the house of the Lord to build it. But David acknowledges now, as the people do this, that everything, the heavens and the earth, is the Lord's. He goes on and he says, Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our Lord, and praise your glorious name. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able, able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you and of your own we have given you. So David recognizes what they've given is really what, what God already, what already belongs to God. For we are strangers before you and sojourners as all our fathers were. Our days are, our days on the earth are like a shadow and there is no abiding. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. So I think about three or four times there we see David is acknowledging all of this that we have given, all of these thousands of talents of gold and bronze and iron, all of this is really first from God. God's given it to them, and now they're able to freely give it back to him. Uh, Job 41 11 is another great verse. Uh, Job there says, who has first given to me? Actually, the Lord is, is really speaking here. Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. And, and heaven there is kind of just the idea of, of the skies. Everything really on the earth again is the Lord's. So even whatever we give to him has ultimately come from him. And again, Psalm 50, verse 10, 11, 12 says this, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. All that moves in the field. So I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. And then again, Psalm 24, 1 and 2, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. So again, the, the, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell in it. And then Haggai 2, 6 is the last one that we'll look at here on, in this kind of section. Uh, it says this, for thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. And so the, the idea here is that um, the Lord's going to do some kind of a shaking in the nations, 
and the treasures of the nations are going to come and um, the, the, this treasure is going to come to the house of the Lord, to the temple of the Lord. And then the Lord says in verse 8 there, Haggai 2, eight, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. And so God's going to going to shake the nations and the treasures are going to come to his temple because he says it belongs to him. The silver and the gold in the world and in these nations, even in these nations of people who think that they own that gold, God says, no, that's, that's actually my treasury and it belongs to me because the world is mine. And, and, and really, you know, we could go to Daniel Actually, let's just do that. Let's go to, let's go to Daniel 4. Daniel 4, kind of the, the middle of verse 34. This is the, the, the Nebuchadnezzar blessing the Lord. He says, His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? Oh, that is not the verse I was thinking of. But there's a verse... Um, yeah, look at verse 32. It, the, this whole, member Nebuchadnezzar had kind of turned into a beast and ate the grass and all that, and, and that was going to happen according to verse 32. Um, Until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And the idea there is that this world belongs to God and he gives whatever he wants to whoever he wants, whenever he wants. It's, it's really up to, to his control. Oh, I am, I have really failed you guys today. And I, I actually, I can't believe this. I forgot the book that I was supposed to bring to and read sections out of it. So I was going to now read <laughs> Randy Alcorn's book, pages 51 in the middle to page 152, where it says, um, some stuff that I'm going to try to give you from my memory at this moment. Um, but Alcorn says something like, if, if, you, if you search all of Scripture, you're not going to find a place where the Lord says that, that he ever relinquishes his ownership of the world. It, it belongs to him, and he really gives it to whoever he wants to give it to. Um, oh, that is just so... I just apologize, guys. It's <laughs> just really like messing up here today. Um, anyways, we're just gonna we're gonna just have to go with it here. So I'm gonna even skip that. Um, oh, and it was so good too. So I, I'm I just really disappointed about that. All right. Well. Hmm. 
Okay, well, well so uh, you guys get the point here. God owns everything. He gives it to whom he pleases. And, and then even with that, you know, someone, someone might kind of say at this point, well, okay, go, sure, God owns everything, but, you know, at least, but at least, you know, I belong to myself. But actually, when we look at scripture, and, and for this, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 6. And this was just kind of right in Randy Alcorn's book and, and the quote there. So, but, but I want you to just, let's see if we can find this, this verse here. Yeah. Does it have the right page numbers? Probably. Do you ha- so Randy Alcorn money possessions and eternity? So can you do a search in there? Can you search for the word search and you won't? Just like put that sentence in search and you won't. Phil might be saving the day here. Let's we'll see here. Search and you won't. It's on the left-hand side in the middle of page 152. (laughs) Oh, it's actually 151 middle. So, okay. Yeah, can I? And I for, you went to, I, I forgot my book too, my Randy Alcorn book. Oh, you heard? Okay. Okay. Thank you, Phil. So there's going to be, I think, three times we're going to have to do this, but this is awesome. Okay. Maybe just play with the screen every once in a while. So How do I? Oh. On you and okay. 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 Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Phil. Um, search. This is so Randy Alcorn says this search, and you won't find a single verse of scripture that suggests that God has surrendered his ownership to us. God didn't die and leave the earth or anything in it to me, you, or anyone else. And if we should think, well, at least I own myself, God says, you are not your own, you were bought with a price, 1 Corinthians six nineteen and 20. Then I think this little heading in here is supposed to be part of the book. It says, when you came to Christ, you surrendered the title to your life, you belong to God, not to yourself. And then this is where I got my little illustration from. He says, when, it, when teaching from 1 Corinthians 6 in a college class, I sometimes ask someone in the front row to lend me his pencil for a moment. And when he hands me the pencil, I immediately take it, break it in half, throw it on the ground, and crush it under my foot. The reaction of the students is shock and disbelief. What right do you have to break someone else's pencil? But then I explain that it's really my pencil which I planted with the student before the session. Suddenly everything changes. If it's my pencil, but only if it's mine, then I have the right to do with it as I please, which is precisely Paul, which is precisely Paul's point in his letter to the Corinthians. The believers in Corinth were not doing, were, sorry, the believers in Corinth were doing what they pleased. And why not? They thought their lives were their own, but Paul said, no, it's not your life. You own nothing, not even yourself. When you came to Christ, you surrendered the title to your life. You belong to God, not to yourself. He is the only one who has the right to do what he wants with your life, your body, your 
um, behavior, money, possessions, and everything. And then he says, God doesn't just own the universe, he owns you and me. We are twice his, first by creation, second by redemption. Not only does God own everything, but he determines how much of his wealth he will entrust to us. And so I thought, I thought that was just really helpful. Um, now, let's just, as we think about this, here, Phil, can I get you to search for um, a, it's, it's the word, a, a distraught, and then his steward? Just, just a distraught. See, it can't be used that many times, the word a distraught, hey? On page 139-ish. So what would be, as, as Phil looks that up for us, what would be the implications of, of seeing our belongings as belonging to God? What, what would kind of come out of that? John Wesley, yeah, perfect. Yeah. What would be the, so, so if, if we thought about our possessions as belonging to God, not so much to ourselves, what, what might kind of flow out of that? What are some things? Maybe, yeah, maybe generosity, right? Because we're not, it's not ours. So if God wants to use it for whatever, then, then maybe it would maybe it would just maybe it would flow a little bit better that way. Okay. Yeah. So if if God owns it, we might take better care of it because we because that's God's car or house or whatever. What else might happen? What? So let's say. Um, so this might be, this might be actually kind of horrible illustration, but, um, uh, so the, not too long ago, one of the brethren, um, backed into another one of the brethren's cars at, um, men's Bible study, right? I think. And, um, and you know, so I bet you the, the first brethren <laughs> that, that backed into the other guy's car, how do you think he felt about it? A little disappointed, right? He, cause likely, you know, I didn't ask him about it, but, but he, he backed into someone's car and smashed his car and he kind of felt bad. But how did you feel about it, Lindell? <laughs> Just gonna put it on you. <laughs> okay, Lindell wasn't there. Um, but I could just, I could just be totally honest about like how I felt. I was kind of like, oh, that's kind of funny and, and a little too bad. But like, <laughs> it was, I probably would have felt differently honestly just like just confession time right now it might have felt a little bit differently if i had backed into that that brother's car because 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 it's not my car so if we now apply this to to um our stewardship how how might you um feel about something if it if it got damaged or something if it wasn't yours how would how would you respond a little differently maybe Yeah, graciously. And, and what I'm kind of thinking about is worry, right? Because, because we can sometimes like worry about something because it's, it's ours. But if it's not ours, maybe, maybe we might feel uh, a little bit differently. And so I just want to read this, this story. This is from Randy Alcorn again. Uh, and he says this. He says, a distraught man furiously rode his horse up to John Wesley, shouting, Mr. Wesley, Mr. Wesley, something terrible has happened. Your house has burned to the ground. 
Weighing the news for a moment, Wesley replied, No, the Lord's house burned to the ground. That means one less responsibility for me. And then Randy Alcorn goes on and he says, Wesley's response wasn't the sanctimonious reply of someone who thought I'd be quoting his words hundreds of years later. We might say, get real, but his reaction didn't stem from a denial of reality. Rather, it sprang from life's most basic reality that God is the owner of all things and we are simply his stewards. And then he tells the story about a, a couple who, who kind of took a hold of this idea that they were just stewards and, um, and they, they just got into giving to Christian ministries and being very involved in ministry because they recognized like this, this blessing that I have isn't really mine, it's the Lord's. And so they just kind of had this idea of passing it forward, passing it forward. Um, and, and you know, I, I think, I think that is a, is a helpful thing for us to think from time to time. Well, this, it actually belongs to the Lord. And if, if the Lord wants his house burned, and I, 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 I've never had my house burned, and I'm sure that's a difficult thing to go through. But there's been times where things have broken or things have ripped or things have kind of been destroyed in other ways of uh, things that, that belong to me, but really belong to God, where I have been able to just kind of be like, well, I guess, I guess the Lord's, um, I guess the Lord's shirt ripped and I'll have, and he'll have to get me a new one if he wants me to wear shirts or whatever, right? There's, there's, um, it, it kind of takes the onus off of us a little bit. <laughs> Phil's just laughing. Phil's like, I, I do want you to be wearing a shirt. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, don't we all? So, <laughs> oh boy. Last Sunday night, we had 90 people, and so I'm just, tonight, I'm just kind of feeling up here, just kind of going, I'm so glad that there's only like 40 of you here with me tonight. Um, anyways, all of that up till now is just to kind of introduce us to this idea of biblical stewardship. And um, Phil, can you help me find, I think this is the last one. It's probably going to be easier if you search for designated responsibilities and then we work backwards. So designated responsibilities. Right about page 140. But that, so yeah, probably still the 140 near the, near the middle of it or bottom. It's pretty bang on with the page numbers. Okay. That's good. So, yeah, I just got to go up a little bit. Okay. Um, Okay, so this is, again, just quoting from Randy Alcorn's book. The title of this section is called Stewardship, and he just, he says this. He says, the word stewardship has recently fallen on hard times. To many, it's no longer relevant to the day in which we live. To some, it's a religious cliche used to make fundraising sound spiritual. Anyone kind of relate with that? Anyone, has ever, anyone heard the word stewardship and kind of think, oh, spiritual fundraising or anything? No? Yes? Maybe? Okay. Uh, he says it conjures up images of large red thermometers on church platforms measuring how far we are from paying off the mortgage. And, and we actually talked about getting one of those large thermometers when we were talking about buying the land. So um, and if that's like a horrible thought, you know, we can, we can do away with that. But uh, Alcorn goes on and he says, because of these bland associations, I was tempted not to use the word in this book. 
But it's such a good word, both biblically and historically, that it deserves resuscitation rather than burial. And then he says, and this is a quote from I don't, I don't know what, and his footnotes are at the back of the book, so I didn't look it up, but this is a quote from something else. He says, a steward is someone entrusted with another's wealth or property and charged with the responsibility of managing it in the owner's best interest. And he says, this is now, this is Alcorn again. He says, a steward is entrusted with sufficient resources and the authority to carry out his designated responsibilities. And so um, that's kind of this idea of stewardship. The, the Greek word is um, oikonomos, oikonomos, and, and it's a, a, a steward uh, is a, a manager of a household or an estate. And so the idea is a steward or a manager, and the ESV, for the most part, translates that word as a, a manager, but the, 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 the New American Standard, the Legacy Standard Bible, translates the word uh, a steward. The, the words used in 1 Corinthians 1, 4, um, really, and also verse 2 again, uh, it says this, This is how one should regard us, Paul's saying, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Oh, Phil, can you look up one more thing? Actually, I didn't, I forgot that I need one more. It's, it's stewardship isn't, it's just like, it's actually probably just like a a half a page away from what we just looked at. If you just, if it, if you can get that right back. Okay. <laughs> I would have first have to buy Phil one of these to make it really work, though. Uh, so Alcorn again, he says, stewardship isn't a subcategory of the Christian life. Stewardship is the Christian life. After all, what is stewardship except that God has entrusted to us life, time, talents, money, possessions, family, and his grace? In each case, he evaluates how we regard what he has entrusted to us and what we do with it. Now, that's for sure actually the last, so I don't need it. Thank you very much, Phil. You saved like Bible study tonight. Um, okay, so we're just thinking about what is, what is this, this steward. And um, let, me, let me cover it right now here from over here. Um, to be a steward... In the, in the ancient Near East was a, really a prestigious position. This was like, kind of like the dream job. And, and a steward was, was somebody who, who managed an estate for a person. And, and typically it's a rich person. So they, they manage their household, their slaves, all of their possessions. And, and most often what would happen, it was a, a wealthy landowner owned you know, a whole bunch of vineyards and a whole bunch of farms and whatever they owned. And then they would, they, they're, they're, they're wealthy landowners. They don't want to work that land. And so they would hire a steward, a manager to, to take care of it all. And, and often they wouldn't even live nearby, right? They would, they would live away and, you know, they, maybe they live in, in Rome or whatever. And they've got a steward kind of managing the land that they own in Israel. And so all of 
the, the steward really has the authority of the owner. And if he makes a deal, that deal is binding. And it's, it's as binding as though the owner of the land himself had made the deal. That's kind of how stewardship works. So they have full control of their, their master's, uh, wealth. And, and they, they kind of run everything, but that also means they get to enjoy everything that the master owns. And so this is a great position. Now you could be in this position as a free person. You could be in this position as a slave, but either way to be this kind of a, a steward was a, a great position. And, um, and so this is, this is kind of like the ancient Near Eastern dream job, uh, to kind of manage the wealth of, a of another person. And that's kind of what scripture talks about with us. We are stewards, God, whatever we have, whatever grace we have, whatever gifts we have, whatever talents we have, whatever time we have, whatever resources we have, God has given it to us, but it really belongs to him. We don't really own it. He has just lent it to us. And now we have this opportunity to use it. And when he returns, we're going to give an accounting for how we used it. And so with that, I want you to go to Luke 16 and we see this, this parable of a steward in, in which we are compared as a Christian to a steward. And it, it shows us how we should steward what God has given us in this world in light of eternity. And so this, this Luke 16, verses 1 to 10, but really kind of in the context, probably 1 to 14, um, shows us kind of what what should be our, our our relationship with the world between these two extremes. So let's just read the parable and then we'll we'll dig into it. So Luke 16, starting at verse 1, he also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, again, an oikonomos, a, 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 a steward. So there was a rich man who had a steward and charges were brought to him that this man, this steward, was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager, no longer be steward. The manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking away the management or taking the management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig. I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. And then Jesus says, kind of in conclusion, he says, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? 
And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. That that same word there, God and money, God and mammon. And then verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And so again, this is a a parable that compares the believer to a steward and this whole biblical concept of stewardship. And and as we get into this, it's a a bit of a difficult parable to interpret. And and many say it's one of the most difficult. Why why would you think that this is difficult to interpret? interpret what did you did you see anything in there that have you ever kind of wondered about this parable i think i did teach on it once and i preached this message once yeah okay it sounds like he's being totally dishonest and yet he's rewarded for it in fact that word there translated commended in verse um eight i think it is uh, is actually the word to praise. And so some translations say the master praised the unrighteous steward. The, the ESV calls him the dishonest uh, manager. Is that what it says, verse 8? The, the master commended the dishonest manager. So we've got a, an unrighteous person or, or maybe a righteous person because he's praised, but he's also said to be unrighteous. He's been accused of, of wasting his master's possessions. In verses 5 to 8, it seems like he, um, he cooks the books, is kind of how I've heard that said. And so the, the, the question comes, if this guy is unrighteous, then why are we called to follow him? And we'll, we'll kind of answer that later on. A lot of the problems with this whole thing is because people think, well, we can't follow an unrighteous manager and so they try to find ways to make him what he did righteous but I think those are kind of all wrong but the best way to interpret parables is just for us to focus on the story and don't go to the spiritual meaning yet so let's just think about the story and and you're going to kind of lead here so look at verse one and who are the characters in the story just give me the characters Okay, we got a rich man and we got a dishonest manager steward. And what do we learn about these people? What do we know about them? This is still, I think, in verse 1 here. What do we see about them in verse 1? There's another character because someone brings an accusation. Okay, so... Yeah, so there's charges kind of by this unnamed person. There's charges are brought forward. Um, what are the charges against this guy? Okay, wasting his possessions. So, he, so he's at least been accused of wasting, squandering the master's goods. And remember, he, was, he had full rights to the master's goods. He could do whatever he wanted with them as the steward, but of course he's going to have to give an account to the master. Now, as far as as what else we know, we know that the the master is a rich man, which would be pretty normal if he had a steward who took care of his goods. Now, what does the master do in verse 2 about the charges that were brought to him? 
And, and we see two things here. What's the master do in verse 2? Confronts him, yeah. He confronts him. Uh, what is this that I hear about you? And then what else does he have him do? Yeah, give an account. He's, he's, he says, um, turn in the account of your management. And, and uh, I, the, the way that this worked, and, and we'll probably talk about it again later maybe, but the way that this worked would, was there was there was books that were kept of everything that the master had, every business deal that that happened, and and they were they were kept in duplicate between the two parties, and so there would be one copy in the steward's handwriting that that probably the um, the people that that worked the fields would would kind of have a copy of, and then the people that worked the fields would make a duplicate copy of that and give it to the the steward. And, and they would, and so, so that you couldn't change it because it wasn't in your handwriting. And so that you, but both parties had a copy of any kind of deals that were made. And there would have been a master account book of all of the, the management. And so the, the rich man says, okay, turn, I want to see the, I want to see the books. I want to see the, the management that, that what's going on because I've, I hear that you, that you're wasting my goods. Now the second thing that happens there, is that the man is fired. Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. And so he fires this guy and, um, and, and sends him away. Now, now here's the problem. The manager's fired. He's, he's losing his job. And then what do we learn about his heart? What is he thinking in verse three? What's going on in verse three with this man? A little glimpse into his into his heart. He, yeah, he's ashamed to, uh, he doesn't want to beg because he's, he, cause he's kind of worried about what's going to happen now. Um, he's going to lose his job. Now, if you think about this, let's just say, Let's say that, that there was a manager in, let's just use Lacrete because I think Lacrete would be perfect. Let's say that there was a manager in Lacrete who got fired for wasting his boss's goods. How do you, how likely is that guy going to get hired again in town here? Not very likely. Why not? Everybody's going to know about this unrighteous manager because he lives in a small town. And, uh, and everyone knows everyone and what's going on, and half of them are related to that guy, right? And so that's kind of how that's going to happen. So, it, you, you know, the, the chances of getting a job when you were fired for squandering in the job that you had before, uh, very, very slim. And so this guy goes, what am I going to do? Because he's got soft hands and he doesn't know how to dig, right? He doesn't, he doesn't want to dig. He doesn't want to work for a living, He's been just chilling, living the good life, using his master's goods, but he also doesn't want to beg, and so he's kind of like, there's nothing, and he can't get another job, and so he's in, he's in a bit of trouble. That, and that's kind of the situation. Now, what's going to happen if the manager doesn't figure something out? 
What would ha- that's not even in the text. That's just kind of like thinking. Log- What's going to happen if he doesn't figure something out? He'll be poor. Yeah. And then he, what happens if you're so, if too poor? You can't eat. He, like he, he's in serious uh, trouble. What do, you, what do you call the the position? What would you call this position that this guy's in? The situation. It's not, there's not one right answer to this. What, what do you call this? Desperate. Des, yeah, desperate. Um, what other words might you use about this, this kind of a situation? Living on the street, yeah. Yeah, he's going to be living on the street. He doesn't want that, right? He doesn't want that. He, so I, I called it a, a crisis, a dilemma. He's in trouble. Um, now, in this, in this trouble that he's in, what's he, what's he worried about? And this, this might be a little bit of a tougher one, but what's, what's he worried about when he thinks about what, he's, what am I going to do? Yeah, that, he's kind of going, how am I going to live? What am I going to do? When he's thinking about that, what, what, what time frame is he thinking about? Maybe that would be helpful. What time frame is he worried about there? Okay, yeah, he doesn't want to look like he's a bum. He's think, he, you know, he's thinking about his retirement. So for you, Lindell, when... When is retirement? Just for you, like from between. <laughs> when for yeah, for Lindell when he dies. Now, when are you? Since you're not dead now, when are, when would you maybe die? <laughs> and the word I'm looking for though it starts with an F, and it's spelled F U T U R E, I think. So um, the future. So this this guy. Is, is worried about what's going to happen, not, like, not necessarily right now, although it's starting. He's really worried about his future. And so what we have here, and, and we're just analyzing the story here, is we've got a guy who really has, has no hope for the future, and he's in a crisis situation. And, and really what he needs, because he's going to be out on the street and he's going to be Hungry, I think, is how Todd said it. He he needs to provide for his future somehow, but he doesn't want to beg because it's it's too lowly. He doesn't want to dig because he's he's been so comfortable for so long, and it's just not what he is all about. Um, and so he he's got to provide for his future. And what does he come up with as a plan? Look at read. Ver, let's read verse four, and then I'll ask you what the plan is. He says, I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So what's his plan? And then remember verse five and six he, and seven, he cooks the books. He's, he kind of works this thing out. What's, what's this guy's plan? How, how's he going to keep from digging and begging? Uh, yeah, mooching. Yeah, that's a good word. Mooching. What? What other? What? How else would you guys describe it? I never heard that word before, but that's that's a good one for this. He's going to make some friends in high places. Some friends in high places, 
And the way that I have often put it, he's like, he's just hoping to sleep on the couch, you know? Like, I think that's kind of what he's, he's just like, hey, I, I got an idea. At least I can sleep on the couch and get some meals, right? From, from these folks. So yeah, he's gonna, he's gonna mooch off of these folks. That's, that's the plan that he comes up with. So he's gonna, um, do something here, and, and we're going to see it's something dishonest, but he's doing this in order to encourage the people to take him in when he's out of work. And so look at verse 5 then. He says, so summoning his master's debtors one by one. So the very typical um, people people have made deals to work the land and and. And the, the deal is you work the land and at the end of the time you have to, you have to give me X amount of, of goods, you know, X amount of olives, X amount of whatever. And so they, all these people owe the masters, owe the master money. And it was pretty normal for a master like this to kind of be owed quite a bit of money, um, based on what, what would happen in the harvest in that upcoming year. And so, um, he goes and he gathers the master's debtors one by one, and it's literally there, each one. So he takes every single one of his master's debtors, and he does something to them. And, and we get kind of two representative examples. Now, to kind of add into this, the, the idea here is that nobody knows yet that this guy has been fired. Okay, so, so he's been fired but the re- the rest of the town doesn't know this yet. Master probably lives far away, and um, and so they don't know this yet. And so he he kind of meets with each one of these debtors, and he goes to the first one. He says, "How much do you owe my master?" And he said, "A hundred measures of oil." Hundreds. It's literally a hundred uh, baths of oil, a hundred baths of oil, and that would be equivalent to. 800 or 900 gallons, and, and we're talking olive oil here. And so this would be the yield of about 150 olive trees. That would be the, the amount of oil that you'd get out of 150 olive trees. And if you kind of take that and you, it's, it's most easy to divide money in the ancient Near East to like a day's wages. So if you, if you take, uh, 800, 900, 150, um, olive trees worth of oil, that'd be worth about three years wages for the average worker a, a denarius a day. So 300, or sorry, three years wages. Now, how much did the second debtor owe? I think that's in verse 7. How much does this guy owe, this next guy? What's that? (laughs) Okay, your footnote says 1,200 bushels of 100 measures of wheat. Um, 100 measures of wheat. Let's see if if my notes are the same as your notes. Um, 100 cores of wheat, that's that's the produce of 100 acres. I actually have no idea how much a bushel is. So produce of about 100 acres, enough to feed 150 people for a year, apparently. 
And that'd be worth about seven and a half years wages for the average worker. So that's kind of the two numbers we're going to deal with. Three years wages and seven and a half years wages. Now, if you take three years wages, and what does he say there? Um, let's, so um, the, he said to the first, verse five, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. So if we take the three years wages and we divide it in half, he's saying that's a, that's a year and a half's wages. And then if we go to the next one and we see that it's, um, he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. And so that's 20% of, and it is actually neat. If you take 20% of seven and a half years, that actually works out to one and a half years as well. So both of these debts are reduced by about, by one and a half years. Now that's just kind of an, uh, an average or an estimate, but that's, that seems to be, it's interesting that it works out to that. Now, what do you, what do you notice about the amounts in view here? What, what do you think about these amounts? Uh, a, a year and a half's wages of reduction in the bill. Any, any thoughts on that? It's a, yeah, that's a pretty awesome discount, right? A year and a half wages. Um, yeah, that's, that's a, that's a huge amount of money. Now, again, he did this for each one of these debtors. We just are given two examples. Now, just a few things we gotta notice. Look at verse five again. Notice that he says, um, to do it quickly. So, um, that's actually verse six. Take your bill, sit down quickly, and write 50. So, um, let me just tell you that, you know, this, really what he's doing is cheating his master out of a year and a half wages, year and a half wages. And if he does this with every single debtor, that's going to add up to a lot of years. Now, like I said, and I don't think we have time to get into all of the interpretive stuff. Um, a, lo- a lot of interpreters try to try to somehow put a positive spin on this whole thing in different ways, um, but they do that by kind of noticing what's not there, and they, and they so they say, well, he just cut out the the extra interest or something like that. But there's just no way to make a reduction of a year and a half wages um, into a righteous thing, and so. So when, when, when this guy rips off the master, what, what would you expect the master to do? Be very, yeah, you'd expect him to be very angry, right? So he shows up, he thought this guy was squandering his goods, and now it's like, well, now you really squandered my goods. And so you wouldn't expect the, the praise. But the master praises him or commends him, but, but, what is the what is the manager called in verse eight? Shrewd, but what's he called right before that? Dishonest, yeah, dishonest or or a cheater. Um, he's called dishonest, so he commended the dishonest manager. What what did he commend him for though in verse eight? That was yours, Lindell. Okay. (laughs) 
Okay, well, he, he commended him for his shrewdness, his shrewdness. I heard MacArthur say it one time, it's like one, one worldling commending a, another worldling for getting the, the best of him, right? So the, you got one, you got one guy saying, wow, you know, you, you outsmarted me, you pulled a, you know, you, you pulled a fast one on me, you, you, you got me. And, um, and I think that's the idea here. That's the, that's the reason for the praise. And, and what do you call it when, when you expect something, but then something else happens? So you expect him to be mad, but then something else different happens in that. What's, what do you call that when something like that happens? So let's say you, 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 you're coming home on your birthday, but you thought your wife forgot about your birthday. And then when you get home, there's a hundred people at your house and there's a party going on. What, what is that? A surprise party. Cause you were expecting to kind of just go home and have a miserable dinner with your wife who forgot your birthday. And then surprise, we remembered and it's a big party, right? So that's what, that's what's going on here. This is a surprise element in the parable. And one of the things about interpreting parables is, is when there's a surprise element, we need to pay extra careful attention because that's often the hinge of the main point. So we have to pay attention here to this surprise. And he praises the guy for acting shrewdly. Not for necessarily for his unrighteousness, not for squandering his goods, not for stealing, but for shrewdness, for, for, for prudely and, and wisely, again, taking care of his future. And so the, I would say the focus on the story is that the unrighteous manager is, is going to lose everything. And so he shrewdly plans for his well-being. And then he is praised. His, his future's up in the air. He says, what am I going to do? And, and again, actually, there's one, two, three, four, four times the verb to do or to make, and it's translated differently in the English, but four times that the, the emphasis is, is on this doing. What is he going to do? I'm going to do this. I'm going to act like this. I'm going to, I'm going to do this. And so the, the, the emphasis is on doing, doing something true, doing something wisely to take care of the future. Now notice in verse 1, this is for Jesus' disciples. This whole parable is for his disciples. And he just finished teaching the Pharisees that they should, in, in the parables in chapter 15, that they should get on board and, and rejoice when sinners repent. And in the final parable of, of Luke 15, there's a, the, the one prodigal son is squandering his goods. And so the, the question then kind of comes, well, how, how should we use goods? And in verse 8 of chapter 16, Jesus kind of makes a comparison. He says, for the sons of this age are more shrewd, at least this is the NASB, the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. So again, the, the last part of verse 8, we haven't read that yet, but the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. 
So somebody here is more shrewd than somebody else. Now, who are the two categories of people in verse 8, in that second part of verse 8? What are they called there again? Yeah, good. So people of the world and people of the light. Now, who, do, who would you say these people represent? Good. Christians and non-Christians. Maybe if we go back to Luke 15, the lost and the found. Um, what, another way that we often would put that is, especially in Old Testament terms, the righteous and the unrighteous, right? And what was, and I didn't tell you this, but the, the word dishonest in verse, um, eight, the dishonest manager is literally the unrighteous manager. And so I think that's kind of helpful to think about. So we've got the righteous versus the unrighteous. And so the manager is kind of like a, a son of this age. He was, he was wicked. He was unrighteous. But, but what did he do? He, he acted. He did something shrewdly to secure his future. And so the idea then comes out here. He's, he's more shrewd even than the, the rich manager. He's kind of, he kind of out, outsmarts this other guy. And so if this, and, and then the, the idea of this parable kind of comes across like this then. If this wicked guy can be so shrewd to prepare for his temporal future, right? His, his future in this world, then how much more should the sons of light be shrewd to prepare for our eternal future? And that's, that's the idea of what's going on here. For the, Jesus says, as he explains the parable, the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. So the, the, the worldly people are often, they're, they're thinking smarter, they're working harder, they're more prudent to prepare for their, their future living in this world than the believers are at preparing for their future in the next world. But the way that Jesus puts this, because most often we'll see these parables work as like a how much more, how much more, um, the sons of this world, how much more shrewd are they in dealing with when, this generation than the sons of light? But actually, what the way that Jesus puts this is it's almost like a condemnation of us, and it almost should make us ashamed to think about it, but, you know, often worldly people are just, are just wiser at preparing for their earthly future than believers are at preparing for their eternal future. And so it's almost like a, a bit of a condemnation on us for not being wise as we should be when we know all that we know about eternity and what's at stake. So the manager, he didn't want to beg, he didn't want to dig, so he made plans, he took action, and he is more shrewd, more careful, more thoughtful about his future than you and I are. He goes, he goes uh, into this crisis, and, and he sees it coming, and he, and he thinks about it, and he acts, and he goes quick, and, and, he, and he takes care of things quick. And so the question then comes, well, okay, how... How should we then be as stewards? How should we prepare for eternity? We should be more shrewd 
than the world is because the preparations that we're making for our future are eternal. And because unlike this rich manager guy, we actually care about more than just ourselves, right? We care about what's going on, about the the well-being of people in the world. So the question... Let me just see what else I have here. Now, verses 9, we're going to have to do this pretty quick, but verses 9 to 13 then become the application of this parable. And Jesus says, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. And there's that word mammon again. Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. So what Jesus is telling us to do is use the, the money of unrighteousness, kind of what the, the things that the world use, that practically worships and trusts in, use our resources, use our finances, use our possessions to make friends for ourselves in eternity. And, and the idea there is very much like this guy. This, this rich manager just wanted to be able to sleep on the couch. And the idea for us then, we don't, we don't want to sleep on the couch in heaven, but the, the idea is, is that we're going to use our resources and our wealth in giving to ministries and giving to the, the Lord, um, in preparing for ourselves a, a greeting from those that we impact when we get to heaven. That's kind of the idea of this making friends for ourselves, um, so that they may receive you into eternal dwellings. And, and so the, the idea here, I, I, I wish I, I wish I would have wrote this one down from Randy Alcorn, but he said something like, um, we can't keep our money here, right? We're, whatever we have here, where we're going to die and we're going to kind of leave it behind. But we can send it ahead by using what we have to be a blessing to others. And when we bless others and minister to others and use not just our, our money, but our time, talents, resources, everything that God's entrusted to us, as we use that to serve the Lord, people in heaven are going to be grateful for what the way that we served and the way that we lived. And, and there's going to be this reception in each, in our eternal dwellings. And, and also we know f- as well that God is going to reward us for everything that we do, everything that we use for him and his glory in this world. And so there's going to be a, a reward. And Jesus pictures it here, just like this guy was hoping to be accepted into the temporal dwellings of these people that he um, that he gave a good deal on, we also will be received in eternal dwellings if we use our money and our talents and everything uh, for the Lord's kingdom. So I just wrote down here, how do we make friends in heaven, um, support missionaries and evangelism, use money towards things that build up the church and even here, not only just money, but also, although Jesus is talking about money, and that's why the, the Pharisees in verse 14, who are lovers of money, heard all these things and ridiculed him. Um, but everything that we're a steward of, we're to use for God's glory in that way. 
So, um, notice there that it says, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. And the idea here is that the unrighteous wealth of this world is going to fail one day. One day we're going to die and we're going to leave it all behind. And so again, we can't keep it now, but we can send it ahead. And that's what Jesus is, in, is encouraging us to do. Again, this is the, the idea of laying up treasures in heaven, like he says in Matthew six twenty four. Now we're we're basically out of time here, but let me just let's just look at verse ten and eleven. He says, "One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches?" And the, that's kind of a rhetorical question, and the idea is nobody will. And so what the Lord's saying here is we need to be faithful in what, what little we have. You know, sometimes I think we're tempted to think, well, if I had a million dollars, then I'd really do something. And the Lord says, no, 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 we have to be faithful in the little that we have. And if we're faithful in that, then we'll also be faithful in much. And, and the idea is if we're not faithful in the, the, the unrighteous wealth of this world, then Who's going to, you know, will, will God entrust to us the true riches? And what, what are the exact true riches that Jesus has in mind? I, I think it's, again, heavenly reward. And so if we're not faithful in the little bit that we have now, in this little time that we have, then there's not going to be as, uh, as great a reward for us, I think, is what the Lord is saying here. If you're unrighteous in your use of unrighteous temporal riches and you show that your primary concern is this world over the world to come, then you, you almost disqualify yourself for the true riches of eternal joy in God's presence. And so then Jesus says again in verse 13, no one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And so again, we, we, th- this is, I think, um, an important principle as we kind of move on in our stewardship. First of all, God, God owns everything. Everything that we have belongs to Him. He owns it. It's not, it's not ours in the first place. We're stewards. We're to, to manage everything that He's given us for His glory. And He, He tells us to manage it in such a way that it will be impactful in this world for for preparing friends for us in eternity so that we will we will use the the time and talents and resources that we have in this world to prepare for eternal life and to kind of send it off ahead of ourselves that's what the lord has has asked us to do and that's kind of the thing that's going to keep us in balance between those two extremes of materialism and asceticism. We're, we're free to enjoy what we have, but we need to, again, always be looking forward to eternity. And so with that, I think I'm just going to end it here. Um, next time when we come back, maybe we'll have, uh, I'll open it up to any questions that we had about this. 
Uh, but let's just end there. Lord, um, thank you for our time together tonight. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this parable. Pray, Father, that you would help us to, to kind of understand these things, to, to be eternally minded people. Help us to be good stewards of all of the blessings that you've given us. Thank you for the way that, that you have blessed us materially. And help us to love you, Lord. Um, help us to be devoted to you and to serve you, not to serve money, not to be devoted to money, not to be um, loving money, but to really be loving you and serving you in this world. Help us to have that eternal mindset and to prepare for our future. We know that there's a, a crisis coming that, that soon you will come and you will judge the world for, for how they've lived. You will even call us believers to give an account of our stewardship. And so we pray that you would help us to be faithful, even in the little things, Father, even in the very little. And we know that you have promised to richly reward us for all that we do. And we thank you for that. And we uh, ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.